Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Tiny DevOps podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today I have with me uh, an old friend of mine from, I think before high school even, uh, John Gorzen. Uh, John, would you take a moment and introduce yourself? Tell us what you do professionally, why you know anything at all about DevOps. <laughs> sure. Well, um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So I uh, right now I'm a staff engineer at Fastly. We are a CDN and uh, we power uh, a number of uh, pretty large sites on the internet. But I've been working in the field for oh, 25 plus years, I guess. Um, been a Debian developer for about that long. Um, I've been in various roles in SRE, DevOps, IT, development, um, both technologist and, and a manager. So uh, also I'm a geek. Um, I have a lot of probably way too many hobbies. <laughs> so <laughs> everything from aviation to amateur radio to uh, photography and uh, so forth. Nice. Aviation, that's, that's one of the reasons you're on the show today. Uh, you, you are a, uh, an amateur pilot. Uh, how long have you been flying? About five years now. Five years. And you have your own plane. I uh, do. Yeah. You took me up in it. Uh, it's probably been a couple of years now before the pandemic and everything. Yes. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so as, as a, as a self-proclaimed geek and uh, a pilot, what's the geekiest piloty thing you, maybe a piece of equipment or something that you have? Have you, have you built any <laughs> devices that are in your airplane or anything like that? Yes, well, uh, I, I, I've done some stuff in the hangar. So the uh, airplane piston engines really, it's um, not great for them to start when they're cold. And here in Kansas, it does get quite cold. And so you, you want to have them hooked up to some sort of preheat, but you don't want it to be hooked up permanently because that can also be damaging. So I have a Raspberry Pi in my hangar hooked up to a uh, 4G access point, And I have uh, some Z-Wave switches and sensors. So I can schedule it to come on in the morning before I go fly and whatever. Um, but the geeky part is the part that's not done yet, which is oh. uh, the hangar is 10 miles away. And I would really like to stop paying that 4G bill every month and uh, set up a uh, long distance, a slow speed serial link using LoRa or XB radios. But I haven't quite uh, had the time to finish that. I've, I've got the radios, I've got a TCP stack running over both Laura and XB, but I haven't actually put it into place yet. That, that sounds like about three podcasts uh, <laughs> on its own, just to talk about all that. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll certify you a geek. Uh, I, oh, I, thank uh, you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, to, to the topic today, um, we wanted to talk about, or you wanted to talk a little bit about the, how aviation and, and DevOps can be related or can be thought to be related to each other. Um, before we dive into that, though, you know, um, flying is widely said to be the safest form of travel, especially commercial flight, right? Uh, yet it still strikes so much fear in people sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I have I have good friends, some mutual friends who are who are terrified of flying. They don't want to come. I live in Europe, obviously, and they don't want to come visit me because they don't want to fly over the ocean. Uh, ha, I, we know it's not rational, especially those of us who. who pride ourselves, I think, in thinking rationally. We know it's not a rational thought, but sometimes we still feel that way. Um, have you ever had any close calls? No, I haven't. And um, that is sort of actually gets to what we'll be talking about today. 
And, and it's kind of an intentional choice, right? So we talk in aviation about the accident chain. And that is that there's usually not just one thing that caused the accident, but there is a whole series of things that if you made a different decision even yesterday, maybe all of this wouldn't have happened. And, and so what we, what we try to do is identify issues early to prevent the close calls, because the last thing you want is human performance to be the only thing preventing an accident. Because we know that when we're very stressed, we're likely to not perform well anyway. Now we still train for emergency situations because sometimes that is just life. But um, you know, in, in a small plane, the, the two ways you get into, the, the most common ways you get into a bad situation are running out of fuel or mismanaging it or flying into bad weather. So I will uh, pay great attention to weather forecasts and I will cancel a flight and drive or fly somewhere else or fly a different day uh, if there's gonna be bad weather. Uh, so that's, that's sort of, you know, we don't have a guarantee in life about anything, but uh, there are things we can do to try and minimize our risk so that we don't have, so we don't, I, I don't want to ever have a close call and I want to try and do whatever I can to prevent it. Yeah, that's great. So, so let's just go from there. I mean, um, you, you already started to tie into how this can, can uh, relate to the IT profession, but, but maybe just, just run with that. So you talk about trying to avoid close calls by basically thinking ahead. How does that apply to, to your job, to, to, to DevOps, to, to IT in general? Yeah, so let's, maybe let's step back uh -huh. a second uh, because aviation was not always safe like it is now. Uh, if you look back into say the 1920s, 30s, 40s, it was actually very deadly. And <laughs> I kind of feel that we're, and, and, and then, there, there was an effort to put a lot of research, I mean, spanning decades into figuring out what was going wrong and how we can fix it. And I kind of feel like we're at about that point in IT, like solar winds type stuff is still happening uh, in, in our field, but we have new things coming online. They're trying to advance safety, like just talking about languages, we have Rust and Haskell. So anyway, um, to tie it into IT. So I think there are a few things that we can, some mindsets we can start with, right? We can expect things to go wrong. Uh, sometimes we have wishful thinking and we think, ah, you know, everything will always be fine. We, we, should, we should all have learned at the School of Hard Knocks that that is not the case in uh, computing. And then we want to be able to react with intelligence when things do go wrong. Uh, and then we also want to blamelessly analyze failures with an eye to interrupting that accident chain next time. Because just like in uh, aviation, in IT, that you can often go back and say, okay, yeah, this, this major, this time that we deleted our entire customer database, you know, maybe we had some opportunities to have uh, put some controls in or to have different procedures or backups or redundancy or whatever. Uh, and we can learn from that and uh, make it better next time. So maybe maybe that's sort of an introduction. Yeah, I, I can think of so many examples. I'm sure I'm sure you could list thousands, and, and any listeners can probably think of examples of just the last time something went wrong. And uh, it's so easy to 
point your finger at the guy who hit uh, who hit enter after the rm command and but and, and maybe forget to realize that wait why was it possible for him to remove the database or, or whatever right. thing right. he did <laughs> yes exactly and, and that's really important so so one of the things that um so I, I guess I should say, by the way, that like we're we're going to be talking about incidents where fatalities occurred, mm -hmm. and like th these all represent a human tragedy, and I'm going to be talking about them in sort of a clinical analysis way, not to minimize a tragedy, but but we do that because we don't want there to be more tragedies, and it's also by the way the same principle extends to postmortems that we do in tech where we, we generally have to get a little bit of distance from the issue before we can have a, um, a real solid analysis. So anyway, um, if, you, if you go and read NTSB accident reports, and by the way, if you like bend the metal on a private plane, uh, NTSB is often investigating. Uh, and they will, they will not just say, oh, well, you know, it was pilot error. I mean, some well, they may say that was the primary cause, but then they'll go and identify contributing factors. Like, what, what, when you were say people... bend the metal, can, can you elaborate yeah. on that? That sounds like a pilot term, maybe. <laughs> uh, that means literally, like, if you if you have a uh, mistake on your landing and and like your wing scrapes the ground and bends, okay. that is a. So it literally means a... if the metal gets bent yes. in some way. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Yes. It was more literal than it might have sounded. <laughs> oh, <all right. laughs> Sorry to interrupt, continue. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, so, so, you know, people are sometimes tempted to talk about pilot error, but you can often go back and say, now, wait a minute, you know, what, one, of, one of the strategies that we, that we use in um, tech postmortems, and that also NTSB does, is you say, okay, the cause of this was X. Well, Y. And you, you keep asking why. And, and like, well, why did the pilot make that error? Well, they weren't trained for this situation or uh, they hadn't practiced this situation or AT's air traffic control told them something that confused them or whatever. And you can, I mean, you have to stop someplace, but you can keep following this a little bit. And, and sort of the key is like, you know, if you're the guy that deleted the database, I mean, if, if you do a post-mortem and you say, yeah, that was all Joe's fault, like you've done it wrong because you, you have missed the opportunity to figure out, you know, why did Joe have the access to type RM minus R slash? <laughs> have we talked about, uh, you know, if you're root on a production box, maybe you start every command with a uh, comment character until you're sure it's right or pair working in pairs or uh, having redundancy for these things and, and you know, all, all the rest of the things that can go into it. Um, so I actually, I have a, this reminds me of a thing that uh, happened at one of the companies I was working at. We had a credential get checked into a GitHub repository, a very sensitive credential. Now we believed that uh, it had not actually resulted in compromise because it was a private GitHub repository, but we decided we were going to follow our process anyway. And we took a whole bunch of engineers off of what they were working on. Uh, in, um, SREs, DevOps people, developers, a whole bunch of people. And we executed our procedure to basically rekey and scrub production. And, you know, you could look at it and say, boy, was that kind of an overreaction? Or you could say, hey, we, we 
interrupted the accident chain right there. And, and uh, in fact, if you look at, you can also imagine what might have happened if we didn't do that. Well, you know, maybe, maybe there was a compromise. Maybe people would send malware to customers, whatever. Um, actually, that's kind of what happened to SolarWinds. So um, uh, we, can, we can use those analogies uh, in technology as well. Have you changed the way you drive since you become a pilot? <laughs> you know, that is an excellent question. And the answer is yes. Um, I, uh, the car I drive doesn't have a tire pressure sensor. And every time before I get in the car, I do a little pre-flight and I check my tires to make sure they are all properly inflated. The, the other thing is like after I land, so you know, when, when you're flying, you're in this big, vast sky. And, you know, if you pass within like half a mile of some other plane, like that, that feels kind of uncomfortable and close in, in a lot of situations. And then you get out on the, you get out, you know, I put the plane in the hangar and I drive home and it feels really uncomfortable that like, there is a car a few feet away. And like, if the driver sneezes, and uh, closes their eyes and veers over like it's all it's game over <laughs> yeah. and and it feels it, it it just kind of changes perception of of uh you know what what are the risks that we just take on a daily basis and don't even think about very much exactly so you, you did this investigation or, or you, you you scrubbed your your git repository um, right well how, how do you decide when is it when is it too minor to care about. I mean, you made the judgment call there that it was not too minor, but it sounded like it was, you know, maybe maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, you decided to go with it, but how would you decide? You know, that's 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 really the, the big question, isn't it? Of how do you decide? And it's a judgment call uh, every time in tech and in aviation too, in some cases. Um, you know, the, the things we hear about are, when things go wrong, and we can easily look back and say, "Oh well, you know, you should shouldn't have given root to so many people, or 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 whatever. Maybe you shouldn't have set your password to SolarWinds one two three on your FTP server, or things like this." <laughs> but but you know, all, all the times that people choose right, uh, we don't hear about, mm -hmm. and in fact, people may start to question, like, "Did you really?" Were you were you being too cautious there because nothing happened and and all of that? So I mean, you, you can kind of look at it as sort of sort of a, a, a graph, right? On one axis, you can have the 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 um, severity of you know what how bad would it be if something went wrong, and on the other axis, you can have how likely is it for something to go wrong. And you know, in in, in the case of this uh, GitHub situation, it was fairly unlikely that something that something would go wrong, but the consequences of it going wrong would have been very severe. Mm -hmm. So we decided, and, and and you know, of course, in that case, you also don't want to be the company that's like, yeah, we knew about this, but we didn't think it would be a problem. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> that's like just devastating to to your um, public perception right even so, if nothing goes wrong if it gets out right. somehow during an audit or something it could still hurt your reputation yeah. right yeah yeah so um actually aopa which is the aircraft owners and pilots association makes a series of videos uh 
where they um, talk about uh, the findings in these NTSB accident reports. And they'll pick certain ones that are, you know, pretty, pretty uh, informative. And they're generally pretty accessible to uh, non-pilots as well. And, um, you know, they, they've got what they've got several that are really interesting to talk about in, in terms of how they parallel tech. And in fact, one of my coworkers at Fastly that led our incident response team for a while, she is not a pilot. She would read NTSB reports and watch these AOPA videos because they were so informative to her in terms of how do we plan for all of this. So there, there was uh, one in particular that uh, there was a, a pilot, um, he had a Baron, which is a twin engine small plane. And he was taking a bunch of people on a flight. He had low fuel and he, his plane was heavy. So planes have a weight limit. And sometimes if you've got a lot of people, you know, if you, if you don't fill up your tanks, you'll stay under that limit. He uh, took off with weight a little bit above the limit and fuel a little bit below the legal minimum. And he calculated, yeah, you know, I'll probably be okay. He took off. Uh, as he was getting close to the destination airport, there was bad weather there and the air traffic control sort of vectored him around. So he had to fly a few extra miles. Uh, as he was doing that, both engines lost power due to fuel starvation. He managed to get one engine restarted. This is a very experienced pilot, by the way, several thousand hours of flying time. He managed to get one engine restarted, but he failed to properly manage to follow the checklist for dealing with a single engine. And, and he left the plane in a configuration where it had a lot of drag. And so the single engine was not able to maintain altitude and the plane crashed. So that's a situation where like, the, w you had a whole series of, a whole accident chain there, right? Uh, you know, bad decisions up front to go. Um, and it led to human performance being that last factor, uh, whether, you know, the difference between being a close call that was okay and a close call that wasn't. And AOP, I had a fantastic video on that. And uh, let's see, it was called, um, I think I have it, it's called Faulty Assumptions. And, uh, you know, you can think about that. And he's like, pilot is, well, you know, a little bit overweight, probably okay little bit fuel less than the legal limit, probably okay. Turned out he was a little bit wrong about how much fuel he had. He was more under than he thought. And when you and when you're just flying that fine line, like you can't survive anything going wrong. And uh, you know, I would I'm a very much a by the book person. I would never have done that. But um, it, it, it sounds now, like he he was kind of mentally thinking, you know, there, there's a margin of error on each of yes, these variables. Exactly. So, you know, if I'm a little bit overweight, it's fine. And, and if he had yes. only been a little bit overweight, he probably would have been fine. But yes. then he did the same thing with the amount of fuel and the same thing with the distance he was traveling. You know, yes. And the margins yes. just didn't add up, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and so that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, mindset that we're sometimes prone to have in IT as well. That's yeah. uh, like, hey, you know, it's probably okay to uh, do this little thing and, and run this thing without redundancy for a little while, open some more ports, whatever it might be. But you, you, you kind of just have risk accumulating by death of a thousand cuts sometimes. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, that's a weakness of that model I just gave you of, you know, risk versus uh, danger. Mm -hmm. 
because your risk your risk and your danger are both can be cumulative. Like you can, you can look at each thing individually, but if you're not looking at all of them holistically, then you may miss that you've introduced some, some larger risk that can happen when, when you kind of combine all of these things together. Yeah, yeah. Um, we actually, the FAA has, um, they identify sort of five attitudes that this is actually part of private pilot training. Everybody has to, know how to identify these attitudes. Um, and a lot of them apply uh, to IT as well. Uh, and there's, there's a sixth that a lot of flight instructors will add. So, so, so the attitudes are anti-authority, like don't tell me what to do. In, in our field, it could be, ah, uh, you know, the Sarbanes-Oxley rules or, or uh, you know, those are, just, those are just best practices. It's okay. We don't have to worry about rotating our keys, whatever. Uh, Impulsivity, you know, just doing it quickly, getting it done. And, and you know, frankly, in tech, sometimes that's what we have to do. Um, the Sort of the big one that gets people is invulnerability, thinking it, it won't happen to us. Mm-hmm. And in fact, SolarWinds, didn't, they were a publicly traded company, didn't have an information security officer, which is just for, for a company that size is kind of boggling. Yeah. Um, you know, a macho is another one that they talk about. It's like uh, thinking, ah, you know, I can power through this. I can do it. Um, or resignation. It's like, you know, the, the, the server's crashed. What can I do now? I guess we should just go home. Uh, and in aviation, we add sort of the, the informal one is what, what flying instructors call get their itis. Like, I have got to get home because I've got work tomorrow and I'm going to just fly even though it's dodgy. And we, we have that, uh, you know, we have deadlines, we have product launches, we, we have that in spades. Yeah. And if we can stop and identify these attitudes, it gives us a fighting chance to take a more logical approach and say, okay, we, we have this deadline and we have some risks. Uh, can we stop and think about if these risks are at an acceptable level here, rather than just like be all in a frenzy and just go for it? So I, 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 I think you've instilled, at least in me, uh, a deeper sense of the importance of, of considering these risks. How do we respond when something does go wrong? What's the, what's the, what's the healthy approach then? Somebody did delete the database. I know I shouldn't point fingers now, but what do I do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, um, well, I'll give you an illustration of what not to do to start with. Great. So this was when, when uh, I was doing driver's ed, uh, probably at the same time and in the same town you were. Probably. And uh, our driver's ed instructor liked to see how people would handle surprise. And one of my classmates was driving and he um, came up with a very loud and percussive sneeze. <laughs> and the person driving took her hands off the wheel and covered her face like this. Oh no. and and, um so you know the first the first thing we've got to do is fight the desire to panic right because when when the chips are down and everything is going bad the worst thing is to like oh no everything's broken uh, we've we've got you know the router is uh, for some reason it's sending all the traffic down link A. 
and link B is just is the bigger one and it's not being used. Let's just um, here, let's just take link A down and force it to send everything down link B when you didn't check to see why. And um, you know, it's it's very easy to get because when, when you're in that situation of panic, that, then we're already down this accident chain and we're to the point where a lot of things are relying on human performance and we're in a place where human performance is going to be impaired because we're all stressed. Mm -hmm. So it's easier said than done to like <laughs> get out of the panic, right? Yeah. So, so ideally, you may even have some run books or some preparation for some of these things. Uh, in aviation, we have checklists. We, I have, uh, we, we, you do a lot by checklist to make, and we have some things that we do by memory. So if the engine fails, there are certain things that you do by memory and then you refer to their checklist and, and what to do in that situation. And by the way, for people that are afraid of flying, an engine failure does not mean an immediate crash. It means your plane turns into a glider. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we may have these uh, attitudes of impulsivity come out when we've got a real critical situation and attitudes of resignation may also come out. But, you know, you've got to, you've got to look at things. You've got to basically follow basic troubleshooting, right? Um, it's, it's sort of like a lot of us probably started our careers doing some flavor of tech support. And, and when you do that, you learn, you learn very quickly that like you need to check and make sure that the cables are plugged in tight and you need to check and make sure that like the CD is in the drive or the USB stick is in, is in the slot or all of these basic things. And um, sometimes we may be tempted not to do that when we're in the midst of a, of a crisis and may overlook something. Um, but you know, you've, you've, got, you've got to gather your data. You've got to think it through logically in a compressed time frame, usually. <laughs> and then hopefully, hopefully you get things going. And then later, make sure to make sure that like, I, I like to say never squander a good outage. Like what good can you come, what good can come out of this? And, and the way you do that is you have a really solid postmortem process that's blameless. And, and that's a challenge because even if you have that, people will be skeptical when they come into the team. Mm -hmm. And it's important that you model. Skeptical that they might get blamed. Even, yes, or, or, right, yeah. right. And, and by the way, in that example, I told you about the, the GitHub incident. I never mm -hmm. knew who it was that did that. And okay. very few people of the company ever did. And uh, I am glad about that because it's yeah. like, that, that means that like, people cared about actually making it as blameless as possible there and recognizing that Gee, if it was it was kind of easy for that mistake to happen, maybe we should have, should put some things in place, um, which we did. Um, and and so you know, having the post mortem where you figure out, okay, not just what happened, but why it happened, and taking that a few levels deep, and then applying that to how we can make things better in the future, because you really want to not have so many incidents. Right. I remember joining, uh, actually, the last couple uh, teams I joined over the last two or three years. I remember waiting for that first incident to occur uh, <laughs> on my watch so that I could do some sort of post-mortem. And, and I remember one in particular, uh, it was probably three years ago. Um, the first one we did was, uh, I don't remember the details of the incident at all. 
I just remember I was all getting in a room and everybody not knowing what to do because they'd never done it before. Yeah. And and coming out with, you know, leaving that room with a list of, of action items that we can do to improve and keep to, to both prevent the incident from occurring and second to help our response to the incident next time be faster. And it, it was such a great feeling afterwards. I think it was a two hour postmortem. It rarely take that long in, for, for me, but the first time through, it took a little longer. And uh, yeah, so I, I just remember waiting, like how many weeks do I have to wait for that first incident that anybody cares about? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take long. <laughs> oh no, it's another week with no problems. That's yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So uh, in, your, in your professional life, uh, life, we talked about this already a little bit, but maybe you have a specific example um, where, uh, where this has changed the way you approach something. I mean, your, your GitHub example is great, but it sounds like you're more, maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're more of a bystander there than an active participant in that. Have you had the opportunity to apply these, these learnings in your, uh, in your computer career? You know, so I, I've been for a while, a person that values correctness. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what's drawn me to languages like Haskell and Rust that have mm -hmm. kind of a robust type system with various kinds of correctness guarantees built in. Um, but I think this has sort of sharpened that. And it's also, you know, the other thing it's done is sharpen my understanding of human factors. Uh -huh. And and that's actually something that also goes on in an incident, right? So. So a, a, a good team that's situated to respond to an incident well will do things like tell people, if you're tired, ask for help, and we value that. Uh, if you don't know what to do, ask for help, and we value that. Um, if you have a, an idea and it's different than what everybody else is saying, please say it, and we'll discuss it, and, and we value that too. Because sometimes you get the situation where, you know, it's like uh, Saturday morning at 2 a.m. And, and the on-call person is responding. And you get a lot of people that have been working on it for a few hours and they're tired and they're exhausted. Human performance is terrible in that situation. Mm -hmm. And if you can, if it's a tiny team, if you can tell somebody, hey, you know, take a 30-minute break, uh, go get some coffee or lie down or whatever, that can that can be helpful. If it's a bigger team, maybe you can maybe you can say, okay, uh, you know, let's hand this off to a few other people, and and you folks get some rest. Um, but sort of realize, you know, we're tempted to say we're tempted to have this macho attitude of we'll just push through, and we'll figure it out. And um, sort of as a technologist, we like to think th think through things logically, and we like to say, okay, yeah, you know. The problem is it needs the same resolution at 2 a.m. as it would at uh, 10 a.m. And uh, we're the same people, so logically we should be able to solve it the same way. Whereas we know from a lot of research into human factors that this is not really how humans perform. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while it sort of sharpened my already sort of tendency to like to value documentation and comments and communication, it also really made me appreciate companies that understand human factors and value them and understand that, that like a culture that values people taking a break when they need it 
is a culture that produces better results because you get you get uh, fewer mistakes and better performance out of people when you acknowledge that they are human. That sounds like such a, such a great place to work. And I, I honestly have worked in places that seem to value the opposite attitude. You know, I've, I've worked in a lot of, especially young startups where they tend to value the overtime and the young people who have so much energy, they don't have families, so they don't have to go home at five o'clock. And, <laughs> and they just, they, you know, they, they're trying to milk as much performance quote unquote, out of these people that they can, uh, it doesn't, in, in my view, and I, I expect you agree, it doesn't really produce the results they're aiming for. That's right. That, that's absolutely right. It, you know, it may briefly get more lines of code written, more uh, stories completed, whatever your metric is, mm-hmm. but what's going to happen to the quality of what happens? And how soon is that going to bite you when that when that lack of quality comes back around uh in some cases maybe you could maybe you could you know if you're if you're making it like a iphone game maybe you can survive that way um but it will bite you in the end eventually because it's going to lead to burnout and and it's it's more expensive than people realize to hire and train and get people up to speed and it's, it's just a very, very much a very short-term mindset and um, trying to like run a business that way uh, more than just like, okay, the chips are down this week and we need to rekey everything is probably going to lead to a lot of problems down the road. So, so hopefully the, the managers, IT managers, the CTOs listening will we'll recognize what you're saying and we'll start uh, treating their employees with uh, dignity, giving them time off they need when they're, when they're tired. But what if one of our listeners by chance is on a team and they're just a, they're just a coder or they're just a, an operations guy and their, their, their boss is demanding extra hours or they're, they're not giving them this and they're just expecting this extra performance. What can you do in that situation? I mean, I don't know what answers you have for this, uh, but you know how how can you put the best face on this situation, and try to be responsible, even if you're maybe the only voice uh, on your team that, that cares about this stuff. That's that's a really good question and also a very difficult one, because people can be in different places in terms of their financial situation, their ability to find a different job, and like how how okay they feel with putting their neck out there based on some of those considerations but what i would say in general is regardless of what's going on around you you want to be able to go home at the end of the day and hopefully you can go home at the end of the day (laughs) we hope so (laughs) yeah you want to be able to go home at the end of the day and feel that you acted with integrity Uh and as far as the things you had control over which may be small but as far as the things you had control over, you acted with integrity and did it well. That doesn't mean that you're going to be able to convince a boss that is firmly in the other camp to change. But it does mean you can at least usually make a concern known, raise it. Uh, ideally, you would have it documented in some way in case there are eventual you know, repercussions, whether from a disciplinary procedure from HR because the boss is saying you're 
being insubordinate or some sort of lawsuit or whatever, um, it's good to it's good to sort of have documentation of what's going on. Um, you can try to uh, identify bugs and fix them. You can try to document and comment and and do what you're doing well. Of course, the catch is that a lot of those things take extra time. Right. And and if your boss is just like, I want you to that we've got this sprint and we have got to get X Y and X Y and Z done this week. You know, uh, you you may be trying trading off dinner with the family for writing comments and and fixing bugs, and that's a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, so you know, to, to just be very honest, there is not always a great answer to that situation, mm-hmm. and and the answer for some people might be to to decide, you know, this is not the kind of place, this is not the place I want to be working, and to start looking for some other job. Um, and that is not a failure. That that is somebody you know realizing that they care about some things and uh, that they would like to work at a place where there are others that do also. Yep, great, good advice. It's a tough situation for some people. Um, you know, we we can we can link this back into aviation also. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we had this recent helicopter crash where uh, Kobe Bryant uh, died as well as the pilot. Um, I don't think that we have full information on what happened there, but uh, so 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 we can speculate, right? That that maybe the pilot felt some pressure to take the trip because that was a situation where we knew the weather was not great, uh, and that was known before they took off. Uh, how do you say no to Kobe Bryant? And was was you know even if Kobe didn't specifically say take this flight or you're fired. Uh, which I don't know if he did or not. Just the fact that you are a pilot of a helicopter in uh, California uh, and your passenger is a world, you know, internationally known star that's very wealthy is probably adding some pressure to take this unwise action. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talk a lot in aviation about pushing back on that pressure. Now, in, in the case of aviation, the stakes are higher because the stakes are literally life and death. And um, we have a lot of stories of pilots that did push back on that pressure and viewed that as um, a moment where they, when they acted with integrity and, and uh, possibly saved some lives, including maybe their own. Uh, we also have accident reports when people did not. And... Um, so you, hear, you know, you ever hear the opposite? You hear people who did not give into the pressure, and then things were, and then, and then they're like, maybe I, maybe I should have taken the flight anyway. I mean, that oh, seems less I mean, sure, yes, yes, uh, and you know, in fact, you know, we we actually have, pilots have kind of have some dark humor sometimes. We we have a <laughs> saying for this. It's like better to be on the ground wishing you were in the sky than in the sky wishing you were on the ground. Yeah. And uh, in fact. This, this happened in my family. We were going to fly to Indiana one time. The weather forecast looked kind of dodgy. And I said, you know what? Let's not do it. Uh, we'll drive. Um, 11, 12 hours versus two or three. Uh, we drove the whole way there. Well, almost the whole way there. I was looking up at the sky and was like, well, we could have gone. <laughs> yeah. Because things cleared up earlier than forecast. And, and it was sort of borderline. But I'm not going to 
borderline is not okay to me. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I felt good about the decision and uh, I didn't get any pressure. Like my wife also is, is like, you'll never get any pressure from me to, to do anything like that. Let's, let's always err on the side of safety. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, that's common. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I, I'm sure that's common in IT too. I, I could probably think of examples from my own life, but you know, where you, you, you took the extra time to write the tests or to, to double check things and then nothing went wrong. And like, maybe I could have just pushed it out. Yes, let's talk about Y2K. I mean, this, okay. is, this is the perfect example of that, right? You know, there was, there was a big concern that there were gonna be a lot of problems due to Y2K because people were using two year fields and wraparound arithmetic and all sorts of things. And then after Y2K happened, and you know, this was picked up by media, some of which had a better understanding of what was going on than others. After Y2K happened, there really wasn't a major problem. And people's like, oh, well, that was so overblown, wasn't it? We were all thinking the world was going to end and then everything was fine, pretty much. Yeah, there were I mean, reports that power would go out and flights would be canceled and you know, yeah. huge yeah. disaster, right? Yeah, and the reason everything was fine is because we took it seriously and we fixed all those things. Yeah. It's not that, that the problem was ignored, but it's that we fixed it. And we actually had the same problem with COVID that, that um, up in, here in the United States in the early days of the pandemic about a year ago, uh, Dr. Fauci was pressed to give an estimate of how many people will die. And he says, well, if we do nothing at all in the United States, maybe two or 3 million. And then we, we did do things. We did have restrictions. We started wearing masks and then people was like, see, it's, it's all overblown. He said two or three million people would die. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, <laughs> we took it seriously and, and we did some things. And, that's, and that is so tough in mm -hmm. technology, especially if, you have, if you're reporting to somebody that's like a CFO or not a technologist to, to explain that because, oh, this even happened to me in a small scale years ago. Uh, we had a networking cabinet, network equipment that was just in a closet at a company I worked for. Like, you know, let's put this in a cabinet at least, can we? Well, you know, that we can lock so that, you know, the secretaries aren't going to bump it and turn things off. And CFO's like, oh, that's like several thousand dollars. That'll never happen. And, you know, a few months later that happened. And the CFO's like, oh, well, why do we have this? Why are we so vulnerable to secretaries taking down our network? <laughs> and I'm like, I'll, I'll get you a quote to fix that in the morning, you know? <laughs> Is there anything else that you think uh, we should we should hear about? Any last words of wisdom? Yeah, you know, one other thing to mention. Um, sometimes it's, it's helpful, and this probably isn't so much for small teams, but for a little bit larger teams, can you make a way to let people make an anonymous report of something that they're concerned about. Because uh, like, I, like I alluded to, sometimes people may not really buy into the blameless thing because they've had many instances in their career that tell them that they shouldn't. Um, we have this in aviation also, it's administered by NASA, so it's separate from the FAA. It's called ASRS. I think that stands for Aviation Safety Reporting System. Every month, there are about 5,000, four or 5,000 anonymous reports that come into NASA. Uh, and uh, they, they have a monthly publication, it's called Callback. It's really fascinating reading where they just talk about some of the reports that come in. 
Oh, is there anonymous? We don't know who they're from, but I'm assuming they're from people right. who work in aviation generally. Pilots, mechanics, yeah. uh, other members of the flight crew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, air traffic controllers could also, as well as dispatchers. So mm -hmm. basically people that have some sort of license to, to be in aviation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some, com some companies will have this, uh, the company I work for has this, um, not all, but, you know, it's just a matter of having a wide open door as much as you possibly can and recognizing that some people are, are fine with being loud about something and other people just because of who they are or because of their experiences or not. And uh, anything that you can do to make it easy for somebody to speak up when they have a concern and to take it seriously is a great thing to do. Good advice. And if you're on that team that your boss won't listen to you, uh, at least you can listen to somebody when they talk about <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> they make it yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, John, what, what are some resources that our listeners can, uh, can re refer to? Uh, we'll put links in the show notes, but just just briefly, what are some things, you know, if, if we want to learn more about, watch some of these videos you were talking about, read some of these reports, where can we learn more? Yeah, so I'll send you links to the AOPA accident case studies uh, video series, and uh, there are some great ones. I mentioned uh, the faulty assumptions one. There's another one um, called uh, Traffic Pattern Tragedy, where they talk about task, satura task saturation, where like you're so busy, you, you kind of miss something blindingly obvious, as well as assertiveness, which we've kind of touched on here a little bit, um, setting priorities when you deal with an, uh, with an incident. So that's a really that's, that's a really good one that people can draw a lot of uh, parallels from. Uh, the FAA has a um, publication called the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, and they have a chapter in there called Aeronautical Decision-Making. And it talks about these human factors that we've talked about in, in some more detail. Uh, and that would probably be instructive for people. Uh, then also the uh, ASRS callbacks that I just mentioned um, have some uh, newsletters, they, they have monthly publication. It's pretty short. It's pretty easy reading. That's uh, that's also, um, I would recommend to people just poke around in there. And it's, it's just, I, oh, it's fascinating reading for me because some of it's, it's everything from, you know, helicopters to the 747s. And uh, it's uh, really interesting. Finally, if, if people are interested in, in connecting with you in some way, um, how can we get a hold of you? I am on social media. I, I love to push open, open and open source social media. So the best place is at jgorzen at floss.social on Mastodon. But I am also at jgorzen on Twitter. And I have a blog uh, that is updated kind of irregularly, changelog.complete.org. This episode is copyright 2021 by Jonathan Hall, all rights reserved. Find me online at jhall.io. Theme music is performed by Riley Day.